So I guess we can go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to to join me today. I appreciate sure. it. Thank you. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess, I, you know, these days we can't help but ask because of everything going on in the world, but how has your life been in the past year with the pandemic and with everything else that's going on? How, how have you and your family been holding up? That's a good question. Um, luckily, we've stayed healthy. That's the most important thing. Um, we, uh, it was actually about a year ago that my company sent us all home to work from home, which has never been one of my favorite things. I'm more of a like get up and talk to people and quick impromptu things. So that was a, a bit of an adjustment for me. I've kind of gone through this like grieving roller coaster of missing the office and, and, uh, working from home, but we're, we're kind of getting the hang of it, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a big adjustment period. Yeah, although it's, I will say, I know a lot of people didn't have those options. Either they couldn't work or they had to go and, and put themselves in a risky situation. So I shouldn't uh, I, I shouldn't bemoan it so much, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm fortunate that uh, we just kind of, we left work on a Monday afternoon and we picked right up on Tuesday and haven't looked back, so. Yeah, and I'm the same way. I like to walk around and kind of bounce ideas around. So it's weird to not have that and to just be so um, disconnected and you don't, I mean, online meetings are fine, but when you don't have that, those social, you know, those cues, it's hard to, to kind of communicate and it's, it's an adjustment. So it's, it's a lot different, but that's great to hear that everyone's healthy and, and doing well. Yeah. How, how are things on your side? Everybody, everybody's staying healthy and out of harm's way. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I work, I'm a government employee, so I'm considered essential. So my work schedule hasn't changed at all. I, if anything, I'm working more and I'm, yep. I'm really fortunate because that's the case. And I shouldn't, like you said, I shouldn't complain, but, um, but it, yeah, my schedule really hasn't changed. It's, it's a lot of the stuff that we had planned for our kids, like, cause we're homeschoolers and we had planned to go to Raleigh for a science Olympiad, uh, national competition for our kids. And all that got canceled, and we had plans to go to uh, to Ragbri in Kansas. It's a it's a bicycle ride, or I'm sorry, in uh, in Iowa, it's a bicycle ride in Iowa. So all that got canceled. So in, in that sense, it's been been kind of weird. And our kid, I think our kids are taking it harder than we are because it's like I said, my schedule hasn't changed, but for them, they don't see their friends, and they don't they don't you know they can't do that kind of thing. So it's it's been I think it's been difficult for them. So we're trying to keep them keep them busy. Good. Yeah, that's really it. That, the kids are really, they're in a unique situation because, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have any friends anyway, so I don't, there's nobody for me to really miss, but, yeah. um, but you know, kids, they are so social and they're so, you know, yeah. you get them in that groove where you go to your class and you've got this and you've got that. And it, it really, um, it was an adjustment for them. I, we were lucky that our kids are of the age that they are fairly independent and took to it really quickly and actually, um, you know, grades stayed up and and adjusted really well. But I know there's a lot of other parents and people in different situations that um, this has been super hard for them. Like, I can't imagine having younger kids mm -hmm. and trying to get keep the technology up and running and help them out and keep their attention yeah. span. That's that's got to be crazy. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough for them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm I was curious about about publishing because I know next to nothing about publishing. So how does a book get published from start to finish? 
So there's there's a few ways. Um, I'll talk about the way my books are published in a second, but first I would say there's the traditional route, um, which I've been focusing on and, and um, it's always an option that I'm, I'm exploring, but um, in the traditional manner, you would finish a book, uh, you'd do what they call query letters to literary agents and kind of describe your book, describe if you have any sort of um, literary past, if you have a platform, uh, something that makes you a subject matter expert, and mm -hmm. you try to get a literary agent interested in representing you. But literary agents are picky because they don't make any money until they sell your book to a publisher. So they make a percentage off selling your work. So they, they are looking for marketability in that, and they, they need to think of, all right, can I sell this? Do I know, is, this, is there a market for this? Do I know a mm -hmm. publisher that's looking for something like this? Uh, and they're getting flooded with dozens if not hundreds of query letters a day or a week yeah. so you kind of have to stand up from the pack and you have to be you have a hook enough that a literary agent says all right i'm willing to make you one of my clients because i'm going to go out and start selling you to the publishers to get you published and then if you get a publishing contract then they take it from there you work with editors and they do all the publishing and marketing and and get it out in the world today that's not the route I've gone so far, but I have been experimenting with that uh, and actually trying that with every new book I write, starting with my first book back in like 2001. I actually have a folder of letters and like physical correspondence because that was how you did it back in the day. You had to print a letter, you had to print a self-addressed stamped envelope, envelope to put in with the letter, and then you'd physically mail out to these literary agents. And then somewhere along the way, they started taking like web, they had web forms on their websites, or you could send them an email. Um, so most of it's electronic now, which is much easier because you can do like 10 in an hour. Whereas back in the day, you were like literally folding and clicking the envelope and all right, I got three of them done. Whoo, head to the post office. Yeah. Um, so, so every time I finish a book, I will query it. I will try to um, get a literary agent interested in, in my material and then try to get a contract. Haven't been successful yet, been 20 years at that game. And so I decided, my first thought was, well, I must not be any good. Uh, so I, there was a period of time where actually I, I kind of stopped writing, started focusing on my career, my family. It was that period of time where I had a baby, bought a house, you know, did all that type of thing. And then um, I started listening to podcasts and there were, I found some you know, I was really getting into podcasts about you know, TV shows and movies and pop culture type stuff. And I thought, I'd love to podcast. This is kind of cool, but I don't, I don't have anything to podcast about. Or maybe I'll, I'll look for something to podcast about. And then I found a, a category of podcasts uh, that are podcasts like serialized audiobooks. Or there, for a while, there was an actual um, company called Podio Books. And they were authors that narrated their book and released them kind of episodically. And um, so I was like, oh, wait, I've got that old book I wrote, you know, seven or eight years ago. I could do that. And so I decided to narrate it, figured out how to do podcasts and put it out there and um, thought this this will tell me for sure if I'm crap or not. Like the Internet will be more honest than my grandmother will be. Uh, <laughs> and I thoroughly expected to get trounced and told how horrible I was and how stupid I was. And almost within like 
a week or two, I started getting these emails coming in. And it was, and I remember at one point I had like Australia to Zimbabwe. Like I literally had A to Z across the world. I was getting emails from people who were listening to it. We were excited for each new episode. This is great. Um, and that put a lot of wind in my sails. So that was, that was with this paper world. I'd had about 10,000 words of one way written at that point. And so I decided to restart that. And that kind of got me going into um, the audiobook and podcasting, but that was all free. I was, you know, I was just putting it out there. And the only kind of payment that I got was people emailing me and tweeting me and saying, oh, I loved your book. This is great. Um, and then uh, along with people would say, can I buy it somewhere? I get a copy. And so I was like, huh, I should probably look into that. And then that's when I started doing first ebook publishing and then uh, recently the, the paperback editions. So, so that's how I that's how I publish nowadays. So and when when you were ready to publish a physical book, what was that process like? How did how does that how does that happen? Do you have to approach a, a pub, like someone to to distribute it and to print it, or or how does that work? Um, there are vanity what they call vanity presses, um, but usually those you you put all the money up front and you have to make these minimum orders of thousand books or five thousand books or something like that. Um, and I didn't really uh, have the money to invest in that. Um, so, but probably, I don't know what the time frame is, maybe five or 10 years ago, uh, these print on demand services came out. So you could format your book, upload your book, get it ready. And then as you sell a book, they'll print one copy. So, it's, oh, okay. so it, you don't have to buy the stockpile. Um, so that was actually with a company called Create Space and Amazon bought them a few years ago. So now it's part of Amazon's uh, publishing platform. Part of the machine. Part of the machine. That's yeah. right. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you write a query letter and you send that out, typically how long is that query letter? And what what is it? Is it a summary or, or like a synopsis of what your book is about? Or how do you what what do you do to kind of sell it to a, a publisher? Uh, so it's it's a little bit of the elevator elevator pitch, but it's not like um, it's not like you do like a movie trailer where you don't give away the ending or don't spoil the, the twist. You do usually describe it all the way through, including if there's a twist. Um, there's there's databases of literary agents, so they'll tell you what they want if they want a full summary, if they want ten sample pages. Um, so typically, you kind of start off telling them, um, you know, you're this is the name of your book. It's, you know, 108,000 words, it's finished. Uh, then you give them a quick synopsis of the book, uh, depending on what they, that's usually a paragraph or two. Uh, and then you kind of give them a little bit of background about yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're writing about a, a plumber in space and you're a plumber, you'd say, um, and my background is I'm a plumber for X amount of years and blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. Um, and if you have other like publishing credits or, or you know, you would you would talk about that. Uh, and that's the general format of those letters. And then some will say, send me the query letter with a five page synopsis. And then you would blow that synopsis out more fully and kind of go chapter by chapter and describe it. And then, like I said, some will ask for 10 sample pages, 20 sample pages, hmm. or they'll say, don't send any samples unless I ask for them. And they'll come back and say, can you send me first 50 pages? Wow. So uh, nowadays, does it help when you when you start to kind of pitch your book? Does it help to have a social media following? Is that something that you that you kind of because I know like people they talk about people who who uh, 
wanted to get into the music business and it helps when they have a, a social media following. Is that the same for writers and for getting your book out there? I think so. Uh, it, I, I haven't to this day landed a, a literary agent or a publishing contract officially. So mm. I can't say for sure, but everything online tends to say it does help or it certainly doesn't hurt. So you, if you can say, I've got this following on Instagram on Twitter on, you know, I've got a successful YouTube channel, whatever the case yeah. may be. I think all of that helps because if you get in the mind of that agent, they're thinking, I have to market this person. I have to be able to sell this book. And if they're an unknown, if they don't have a name like Stephen King or George R. R. Martin, I've got to find some inroads into marketing this book. Um, mm -hmm. But I, that's something I've been focused on for years and years and years is just, you know, using social media to, to make, in my case, I like to make genuine connections. I, I don't I use it less for like, hey, everybody, buy my book. But just to kind of find people who seem to be book readers into the same things I am, start conversations mm -hmm. and just get to know people as people out there in, in the social media world. I think of it like, I because I don't travel, none of us travel now, but you know, I don't travel to promote my books, but this would be like going to a book event and meeting people. Mm -hmm. and meeting uh, you know people with like-minded interests i i treat social media like that and then over time i've kind of gotten a a good base of of nice people that i chat with and we talk about books and stuff yeah and that's it seems like it it's less and less now because people are so concerned with the numbers and not concerned with the interactions and the connections they make so i think that's becoming less and less common for you know people want the numbers and they don't really care about the the quality it's more about the quantity yeah yeah i think so and and it's um numbers i'm sure would be great but if they're numbers with no substance behind them i don't i don't know how that would work like if i if i put out a tweet and it's you know i might have a hundred thousand people but if they don't have a personal connection to me mm -hmm. are they really going to pay attention to that tweet as much as it's like oh hey jeff tweeted and they they you know they've had a connection with with me yeah that's more fulfilling, it seems like, to have that personal connection, or at least somewhat of a connection that you, when they do acknowledge that you're working on something, you said something, that it's it means something. It's not just a click of a mouse and they move on to something else. That's that's my take. Like, if you like my books, great, and you're a fan of, of the books, great. But if you like me, um, that's just as good to me. Like, if you, yeah. if you have a connection to me... Um, and even if you don't buy my books, but we, we can talk about somebody else's books or you know, whatever the case may be, yeah. that's very fulfilling in, in the social media world to me. Yeah. So when did you know that you wanted to become a writer? Or at least when did you when, when did you find that? When did that start to kind of develop for you? I don't think I I think I wanted to be a writer before I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I was throughout high school and, and kind of post high school, I was focused on becoming a filmmaker. Oh. And so in high school, I would do a lot of writing. Um, when I look back on it, I didn't think of myself as being a writer at the time. I was just writing because it was fun and I would write like little superhero stories and and vigilante stories. And, I and out of my friends and I that were making videos, and this was back in the day of like VHS, you know, and you edit your video by hooking up two VCRs together. Yeah. And, and um, I was writing the scripts only because I was the, I was the one that was going to do that. Like, Hey, let's go shoot a movie. All right. I'll, I'll write up a script. Let's do it next week. And I'll quickly write some like action, 
hero kind of thing and we'll go shoot it. So I was writing with it. It was kind of like a, a, a means to an end. Like I wanted to make movies, but you have to have something to make a movie about. So I would write to get there. And then um, after college, when I, I moved back to Maine, Maine isn't the uh, hustling and bustling metropolis of movie making <laughs> and television production that, that you might think it is. Um, so I didn't, you know, I was, I, my day job was in banking. And so I, I still wanted to create, but didn't have a studio, didn't have cameras and all that stuff. I, I still needed to, to have an outlet for these stories that were running around in my head. So I pulled up a blank document. I think it was Claris Works at the time, you know, on a on an old iMac. And I just started writing. And, um, and then I was like, and then I wrote something. I had no beginning, middle or end in mind. I just kind of one day started writing and then realized, oh, this could be a pretty good story. And oh, this is getting longer. And this is getting bigger. And every night I would go to bed and I'm thinking about what's the next part of the story? What's the next part? And that's that's how this paper world came about in the, the beginning of the champion saga. And um, and then I realized I had a novel. And I was like, ooh, I have written something with chapters and over 100,000 words. And that's when it kind of clicked. Like, ooh, I'm writing. This is what I'm doing now. So was it this paper world that you, that you narrated on the podcast? Yes, that was the first one. So I did this paper world. Then that, the... The response to that got me back into writing. So I wrote one way, did that as a podcast, oh, and wow. people were clamoring all the time for a sequel to this paper world. And so I wrote this burning world um, and kind of just, just kept going from there. Oh, awesome. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people on, on Twitter and YouTube that are um, in the, I, get, I think they call it the writing community. And a lot of them, I'll often ask advice for um, advice for aspiring writers. What what advice would you give to an aspiring writer, or even if even to yourself, if you can go back in time and give yourself advice and say, "This is what you should avoid," or "This is what you should focus on." What would that what would that be? I would say just start writing. I think a lot of people think writing is this big thing they have to prepare for, or have to get ready for, and they're they're and I think they think there's some gauntlet they have to pass through to call themselves a writer. Mm -hmm. And I would say, if you write, then you're a writer and just start, pull up that word doc, open up a, a notebook or however you want to write and just start putting words out there. Um, and don't worry about it being, you know, don't think I am writing the next Harry Potter. I am going to be the next JK Rowling don't worry, just write because you're writing a story that's fun for you to write. Write something that you'd go pick up off a bookshelf, but don't worry about, then I gotta go find an agent, and then I gotta get a publisher, and I gotta, I gotta build, a, I gotta do cover art. It, don't, just write, just write. Don't, don't be intimidated by the blank um, word document, and don't be intimidated by the process. Don't, you know, if you want to outline first, great, outline. But if you don't, just start writing. If you wanna, um, create character summaries and fully flesh out a character's background, which is going to be backstory that isn't really in the book, but you're going to put it, you know, fine, do that or don't like there's no rules. Just, just write. And then the second thing I would say to people who are writing is momentum. Like writing has this momentum. It's like pushing a heavy 
box across a floor. Like you, it takes a while to get it going, but keep it going, keep that momentum going. If you let it, if it starts to slow down, it will be hard to start up again. Whereas if you keep it going, it kind of, you know, creates its own momentum. And I've found that several times in my life where if I write a little bit every day, it just, the word count keeps adding up. If I take a day off and then, well, it's the weekend and then I've got this hair appointment and, you know, or whatever the case may be, you start to string together these days where you're not writing. And then when you think about writing, picking it back up again, you're like, oh, geez, I don't know where I left off and I got to go back. And so keep momentum going would be what I would tell people who are, are starting to write. Don't, don't let those days off string together. Put, put a few words down on paper. Even if you've got 15 minutes, bang out a hundred words just to, to keep it going. How hard is it to keep momentum going when you uh, when you kind of hit those those roadblocks and those dead ends? Uh, what what did you tell yourself to kind of keep that keep keep motivated and keep momentum going? What what are some of the ways you did that? Um, well, I would one one trick I would have is I would go back and I would read some of what I had already written. Um, that tends to re prime the pump. Uh, and a lot of times, especially if you think oh, this isn't, this really isn't going anywhere, it's kind of floundering, and then you go back and read what you've written. Most times, nine times out of ten, I read that and I go, "I wrote that. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually." Um, and you kind of reinvigorate yourself with that process. That you know, going back and refamiliarizing yourself with your story, um, kind of helping to pick up the thread and, and keep moving on. But also, the second thing I got some good advice early on is don't believe in writer's block. Like a lot of people worry, I get a lot of, you know, writers ask me, what do you do when you get writer's block? Or do you worry about writer's block? And I've never really had it because early on someone told me, just don't believe in it. It, it doesn't exist. It's like a, a batter in baseball worrying about a slump. Like, just don't, like, just keep writing. So if you wonder where the story is going next, one, one trick I would do is just have a conversation between two or three characters. Like, if if I couldn't figure out how to get to the next milestone in terms of plot wise and just have a dialogue, have a conversation and then just keep that word flow writing, that story writing. And what that will do is we'll spin out some character moments for you, or we'll give you time to let it simmer enough in your brain that the next plot point does come and then boom, you're off to the races. So mm. it's don't, don't worry about writer's block. Don't let it get in your head. Just keep writing. It's interesting. That's that's a good. I think that's a good approach to that. I never. It sounds simple, but it, I think a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like a boogeyman that they get in their head, and they it kind of takes on a life of its own when it, like you said, it it's not even there, or it should you yeah. know you can avoid it. Yeah, and and I also I with my projects I tend to let them kind of germinate in my head. A, a while before I start writing, so I don't I don't really do outline. I'm I'm guess I guess I'm what they call a seat of the pantser, like just kind of let it flow. But what I do get is kind of the the nucleus of the idea, um, and then I come up with a little bit of a beginning, middle, and maybe an end. But not, I don't necessarily have to know the end before I get started. And so as long as you've got kind of these the, the core idea, some major mile markers along the way. And then all it's, all the rest is just connective tissue. Like if I know I want to have, I've got this, I'll give you a good example. The um, one way, the, the core of that idea, the germ of that idea was one night I was driving home from work. It was late at night. I stopped to get gas 
Mm. It was kind of a, a summer night. The wind was kind of blowing It kind of blew through my hair. I heard a dog bark in the background and it had a very almost Steven Spielberg adventure kind of quality to the night. So I was thinking like, well, what kind of adventure would happen? Like what, what could happen on a night like tonight? And then I pictured this time travel scenario. And I always, wow. I always loved, I always loved time travel, but this was a time travel scenario, not seen by the, through the eyes of the time traveler, but someone who is being visited by the time traveler. So a time traveler coming to someone and telling them this fantastic story of, look, I'm from the future and we got to do this. And so that was the germ of the idea of one way. And then, um, and then it just kind of, and then I started letting that sit in my brain and thinking of, you know, mile markers. And another big image that came to my mind was running across the frozen lake. Like oh, okay. the idea of having to run a great distance with no cover, like no, nothing to hide behind, no rock, no car, no tree to get behind and someone's shooting at you. Like how terrifying was that idea? So that was an, an image that came to my head that I said, all right, I got to go somehow from guy pumping gas and getting visited from a time traveler to being out in the middle of a lake and having someone shoot at your back while you're hmm. sprinting for your life. Like, so there was two kind of visual elements in my head and then I kind of created little mile markers in between and then just boom, now I have to connect the dots. I just got to hmm. make that connective tissue in between these images that I had in my head. So when these ideas germinate and you have these mile markers in your in your mind, how often do you change those key moments? Uh, as you connect that tissue, how often does the those major moments change or do you try to to not deviate too much from those? Quite a bit actually. The, so um, uh, the the winter setting was kind of a reboot when I did that reboot of um, of one way was I had written the first eight or 9,000 words and it was summer. So in that first opening scene, Barry's out washing his, not shoveling oh, okay. his driveway. Right. So it wasn't, so I had something completely different kind of, you know, running through the woods and, and all this stuff in my head. And then when the image of the frozen lake came to my mind, I said, oh, back up, rewind. It's now winter and I'm gonna, so I will do stuff like that occasionally in, um, in this paper world, I had I had a vision of um, the big battle scene being, uh, for some reason, I just had a vision of someone picking up like an American flag that had like one of those like pointy tops at the beginning, you know, you know, at yeah. the top of a flag yeah. stand, you know, something you'd see in an auditorium or something, that size flag with a flag stand, picking that up and like stabbing someone with it. So I had this vision that was one of my mile markers of like, how do I get to that point? And then it, I ended up not using that element, at least I haven't so far, but um, I never used that in the story, but it did lead me to an auditorium scene. So now I've, oh, okay. so, so I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so that kind of lead, that kind of, you let that kind of guide you through the story, uh, through the yeah, process? Absolutely. And the, and the only time I've ever done any sort of outline was in one way because I had, when I got, halfway through it and I knew kind of where the ending was going to be, I realized it had multiple time streams running and I wanted to have some emotional beats that kind of matched up. So I, I had I had this little blue index card that I just kind of wrote what each of the three narratives was doing. There's the, there's the night of the murder, Barry and Jenny. There's 
Jenny and Dr. Vanderven, and then there's um, uh, the bad guys, Jeremiah and Rodney, right. uh, Jedediah and Rodney, Jedediah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. and um, so I kind of had to like make sure, I knew I had something that I wanted to happen in each of those narratives, but then I kind of wrote them out and then lined them up. So I knew that the, the um, cliffhanger from Jedediah and Rodney's time stream would line up with this thing in the Jenny and Dr. Vanderven narrative. So that's the only time I kind of had to put it, put pen to paper to kind of like outline like that. But the rest of them, I just kind of keep going in my head. Well, I was impressed with, with the way that you ended the chapters and it always wanted me to keep reading. And I, I wondered how difficult that was to keep all those different timelines together and where the characters were and, and just to keep the reader engaged like that because Every chapter I finished, I wanted to keep going. I didn't ever want to stop because I, I knew I wanted to know what would happen with this timeline, but I knew it was a chapter or two away. So yeah. I had, and and, and I, I wanted to know every timeline. So I wanted to know what happened to Barry and Jenny, but I also wanted to know Jenny in the future. You know, so it, that was really that was really a, a good job. And I, I I wondered how you kept all those timelines. Uh, you know how you kept all the all of them straight. And how you line them up in the book that was that was pretty well done little blue index card yeah exactly. <laughs> but i also i would that that's the first book i wrote with um podcasting in mind so i when i'd written this paper world i didn't know what a podcast was you know so that was just kind of happenstance how those chapter breaks happen when i wrote one way i was thinking episodically i was thinking from week to week, how do I keep someone coming back? Or how, if the podcast has already been released, how do I get oh. someone to keep downloading that next episode, that next episode? And if and when you get into the podcast, um, and if you look at one way, the first chapter is pretty, pretty long, and I think it's just Barry and Jenny. Mm -hmm. And then it starts breaking into, I think, the, the Jenny Vanderven and Barry and Jenny night of narratives back and forth. And then eventually you bring in the Jedediah and Rodney. So you have those kind of three rotating narratives going through. And so when you listen to the podcast, most of the episodes, once you get into it, are all three narratives. So every episode gave you a little bit of Barry and Jenny, a little bit of Jenny and Vanderven, and a little bit of the bad guys. And it would kind of rotate in the same order through each week. So I was very much, even though I was writing a novel, I was very much writing with another medium in mind at the time. And I think that helped me kind of really uh, figure out where to end on some cliffhangers to, to kind of keep that, you know, tune in next week yeah. kind of vibe to it. Did, did your earlier experience with writing scripts and kind of playing around on VHS, did, did those, did anything from those days help you with, with that process so on keeping the, the, the listener engaged like that? I, th it, I think so. I think because I started off wanting to be a filmmaker, you know, I'd studied a lot of um, kind of three act structure and, you know, the Star Wars trilogy and George Lucas's, you know, kind of ring theory and uh, Spielberg's kind of style in essence. So when I write, I always thought of this as a movie in my head first. And I think, in, you know, so I kind of think in cinematic of visual things and then trying to get it out on on paper that way so there's probably yeah if, if you were to line it up it probably has a very kind of movie kind of arc to it um 
at least I, I hope so. Or that, that's probably kind of embedded in the DNA because I've been a, like a movie fan since since I can remember. What kind of movies do you are, are your like? What are your favorite movies, or what movies do you kind of gravitate towards? Um, I, I like a lot of anything kind of sci-fi-ish. So you know, my favorite movie of all time is Back to the Future. Saw that on the night before my tenth birthday, and it, like my brain exploded and my life changed forevermore after that. Um, but, you know, just love all the, you know, Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones and and uh, even, um, you know, some of the kind of popcorny action type things like The Rock and Con Air and, you know, yeah. those types of fun kind of romps. You know, those are, I love those. I love comedies too. I don't know if I could write comedy very well. My, my brother's the funny one in the family, so. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I just I, I love really any movie, especially any movie that's entertaining. More of like a, a popcorn blockbuster type movie. I'm not I'm not too much of an art house kind of you know snob, but yeah, I certainly appreciate them. Kill Bill is another another good one. You know, good stylistically, but also you know, action and fun dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah, it is, it is that does have a good balance to it. Tarantino. Yeah. So when you. When you write a book and yet you have your work, is it nerve wracking to kind of to let it go out into the world and let everybody read it? Is that is that a, a what kind of what does that feel like to have your work that you've worked so hard on, kind of let it go out into the world and let everyone critique it? And, and you're going to hear, I'm sure you hear good and bad no matter who you are. But what is that? What is that? Is that is that weird or is that difficult? It's um, I, it's very exciting for me. I like it. I think because I kind of steeled myself early on, like when I first released this paper world, it was going, I assumed it was going to be universally hated and I was going to hear what an idiot moron hack I was. Now I should never pick up a pen again. That was, that was my attitude going in. I just assumed that was going to be, because that's what the internet does, right? You read any comment on any platform, whatever people anonymously can, can rip other people apart. So right. I kind of went in, in the, in a cynical fashion thinking that would happen. And when it didn't, when I realized people were kind, um, like what I was putting out there and responding positively ever since then, I've been excited to get it out. Like almost like, like I would prematurely like want to release little bits of a story or something like that. Like it just, um, I, I, I get, to these points where I'm like, I just want to get this out. I want people to read it. And that was kind of the, when I, when I write something now, I go through, I, I have patience. I try to tell myself to have patience and I go through the process of getting all the editing done, um, doing the queries to the agents, giving that an, as much time as it probably deserves. I'll usually spend three to five months querying, get a couple hundred rejections back and go, all right, done now let's get it out there let's get it out to people who can actually enjoy it and then that's that's the fun part and i just i always put it out there I'm like i can't wait to start hearing what people think yeah. come, on, come on and then it's and it like trickles in people start giving you reactions and then it's just the most gratifying thing when people come back and um whether it's reviewers like you or just people that i've met through social media that just tell you that they like your work it's like hmm. That's it. That's worth it. I'm I'm done. I can die happy now. You liked it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, from when you when you start to let those ideas germinate for a book, 
typically how long does it take you to write a book from start to finish? Or it, do you kind of uh, have it in your mind that you want to, like, do you give yourself a target or do you just kind of let the, those, those main points and that, and that tissue develop on its own? A little bit of both. Like you, uh, when I start a book, I'll say this one, especially now that I've got a few under my belt, I can kind of gauge how long it's going to be. So I'll say, um, you know, I, I feel like this one's going to be in the, like one way I knew it was going to be in the 85 to 90,000 word range. But that's where I was kind of shooting for it. Um, and then I'll set like monthly word count goals and then I'll break that down into weekly and I'll know if I'm falling behind. So I got to like catch up. And then if I have a really good day, like if I have a day where I write like 2000 words in a day, I'm like, whoa, look at me. I'm like, that's like a fifth of my whole monthly goal. Yay. It will take me quickly in, in most of my books it's taken uh, about a year-ish, maybe 10 months to a year to write the first draft. And that's kind of based on a budget of around 10,000 words a month. Um, when I got into this champion's world, which is the latest, uh, it's the last uh, champion novel that I've written. Um, that one in my head, so I knew the first book was 110,000 words. Second book was like 90,000 words. I'm probably not getting this exactly right. So I was like, this one's going to be big. It's it's the finale of a trilogy. It's going to be a little bit bigger. So it's 125,000 words is kind of where I had in my head. Then the story kind of went and went and went. And I'm like, Oof, I'm going to pass 125, maybe 150. All right, I'll, I'll wrap it. I'll bring it in for a landing around 150. That didn't, that didn't happen. And in the end, that one turned out to be like 185,000 words. Um, but that was just the story that needed to be told. And so that one actually took almost two years start to finish from when I started writing it. But that was, in, that was where I kind of really, the lessons of that momentum concept really came to me. There were periods of time where I kind of let the momentum peter out and then kind of let it sit for two or three or four weeks. And then like huge struggle to get it started again and then keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, that one I also decided to experiment with um, using like voice dictation, trying speech to text. I was trying oh, okay. to find ways that I could maybe speed up the process a little bit. It doesn't help. It, for me, no. it was always, um, uh, you know, it was misspelling words or mishearing words. So I spent just as much time going back and fixing it than I would, you know. So at about like the two thirds way, I was like, forget it. I, and I just went and finished it off. <laughs> back to the old way, huh? Yeah. Uh, do you give yourself a schedule to to devote to writing? Or like, you just kind of mentioned it, but do you kind of... Uh, set aside a certain amount of time in the day to to focus on it and to just to have that and no distractions. I tried that for a while, but then I found like if I said, all right, I'm going to write, um, I'm going to write for 45 minutes before I leave work or something like that, like before I shut down for the night. And then if that time goes away, then I've lost that day to writing. So what I said is what I've kind of said instead is just just write when you can and don't worry about having an hour block. I used to do that too, like. Set aside an hour block. Make sure you've got a solid hour to write. But then if someone like grabs you and you takes longer, then you only have half an hour. Then you go, well, I can't do much in a half hour. So <laughs> this day is gone. So I kind of got away from any sort of structure like that. And I said, find time to write, write those work count goals and try to hit them however you can. And if you only have 20 minutes to write, then write for 20 minutes. 
Maybe you'll get an hour tomorrow, but don't don't give yourself too many rules. Then you find life doesn't let you stick to those rules. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, is there anybody that you 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 bounce your ideas off of as you're developing stories and as you're writing? Do you have someone in particular that you have read your your work and kind of will critique you and be honest with you and let you know uh, what what works and what doesn't work? Not usually in the in the process of writing. Once I when I have my ideas, I kind of I I let them be my ideas. After I'm done, usually I'll share my my drafts with. Um, Either, like my brother, he's probably my biggest uh, beta reader. I'll send it to him, and I don't know if he's honest or not, but he certainly gives me feedback and and likes. And and he's not one to like point out and go, "Oh, you really should have had this character do this," or "This wasn't really that much of a surprise." Like he's just very positive and tells me what he likes about it. Um, and so I, I haven't had too many people that have tried to like reshape what I've written or or. Um, you know, give me critical advice that takes the story in a different direction. Usually it's, I wait till it's done. I give it as kind of a pretty much finished product. And then I just kind of let them give me their feedback. I'm certainly open to any critical feedback, but most people are pretty kind and they read it as a, as a story and they go, yep, I like this story. This worked for me. And they tell me what, like what they liked about it. So when, when you're not writing, what do you enjoy doing other than watching movies and, of course, you know, spending time with your family? That's pretty much it. I read other people's stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, I do. I work around the house, you know, try to do house housework. And my career is pretty, pretty involved. My day job, I should say, is pretty demanding and pretty involved. So that, you know, those can sometimes be 50, 60 hour weeks. So um, those are, it's, it's funny. I almost can find times in my life where writing was a, it was an era in my life. I was writing for a year and then I didn't pick it up and write again for another year or two after that, just because of all the other in-between stuff. And that in-between a lot of times includes working on the book. So I'll be editing, I'll be getting it out to beta readers and doing proofreading. And then once I, you know, then I'll do the querying stuff and then I'll do formatting for the ebook and paperbacks. And then I'll have to work with someone on graphics for the covers and, and things like that. So there's always been, I've never really stopped working on the books, uh, you know, per se, but writing is only a portion of that time. And then it's all the ancillary stuff around them. I, you know, I'm very envious of, of Stephen King who can just sit down and write and then pass it off to the team and have the team do all the other stuff. I, I, I want a team like that because although, you know, I could be writing so much more and the writing is absolutely the fun part. Right. Um, but, uh, but as kind of a one man band, you have to wear all the hats. Yeah. What kind of books do you enjoy reading? I, I try to spread it as much as I can. Um, for a long time, I kind of had my Mount Rushmore of authors, you know, um, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, John Saul, and Rice. Like those were my four main ones that I was constantly like reading all of their books. Um, and they're all very different authors, but kind of in the same vein. So in the past several years, I've tried to continuously kind of spread my genre. So I'll read fantasy, I'll read, you know, Game of Thrones, I'll read straight up, you know, spy thriller, you know, no speculative elements at all, like, you know, the Jack Reacher books and um, I read Westerns, I'll read um, 
a lot of like biographies and histories too. So I'll go back and you know read um, like the Killing books by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard. You know, Killing Lincoln, Killing Kennedy, and kind of get oh, some yeah. historical perspective. Um, I, I try to spread it out as much as possible. The only thing I really don't read is like, you know, Harlequin romance type novels, um, and uh, not a lot of like literary fiction. You know, kind of like New Yorker type type stuff. Highbrow. I'm I'm not that smart. Yeah, <laughs> makes two of us. Uh, which which books are your what what book is your favorite if you had to pick one or if you had to have a Mount Rushmore of books? What, what, what um, would be of other people's? Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, my favorite book series ever is uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower. Hmm. I've read that probably three or four times all through. Although I came in in the middle and, and then had to backtrack a little bit, so I've kind of lost track of how many times I've read read the whole series completely, but. That's one I will probably read every few years. Just such a great series. Um, also, my favorite standalone book by him is Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. No surprise, time travel involved. So yeah, <laughs> love that. Yeah. Um, I love the Ready Player One, Ready Player Two books by Ernie Klein. Uh, Ready Player Two just came out recently. That's just they're just fun because they're so like pop culture eighties. Uh, love affair kind of books that that right up my alley spoke to my generation really well yeah. so those are some of my favorites i loved anne rice's vampire and witch books and, and when they start she starts combining those worlds together but the vampires lestat and you know interview with a vampire that series kind of i fell in love with her her worlds you know her dark new orleans voodoo kind of worlds yeah so, she captures that really well yeah I first straight up just like uh, shoot him up, punch him in the face. I love I love Lee Child's Jack Reacher. Yeah, those are fun. Did you catch the adaptation of Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three? I did. On, uh, yeah, Hulu. On Hulu. Yeah. What, what, what did you think about it? I thought it was good. I I always wonder whenever I see adaptations that stray from the book. I'm always like, why? So that one was odd that it started. You know, instead of going back to 1958, the main character goes back to 1960. That's weird. And then they introduced a whole new character and this guy that kind of plays his, his the guy who's kind of posing as his brother while he's living in Fort Worth. While in the books, he's kind of doing all of that alone. And that part I get. Having now done some screenplay adaptation myself, um, I get that you can't have whole sections of a TV show or a movie where the, the character is by themselves and most of the most of it is covered through um, kind of internal dialogue, you almost have to have someone for them to talk to to externalize that dialogue. So I get when you have to add a character like that or, you know, um, or you give the, the character a weird habit of talking to themselves all the time, or you have a narrator, you know, something like that. But there are tricks to get around it. So I always wonder why, why things get changed up. But um, generally, I like the Hulu series. I've only watched it once, read the book a couple times. Um, nothing nothing replaces the book. The book's always better, right? It is. Um, yeah, it is. But yeah, those are, those are always, it's, I, I, as the kind of the technician in me that kind of disconnects from just enjoying something, why do they do that? Oh, they added that character so he could explain this to that, you know. Um, but I, I liked them both. The the don't get me started on the Dark Tower movie though. That one, 
I, I, ugh, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Yeah. I, I haven't always seen say, that one yet. Yeah. Oh, don't. It's ninety-two minutes. You'll never get back. I always say oh, wow. it should have said the Dark Tower instead of based on the book by Stephen King. It should say loosely based on the Wikipedia summary of the entire series. Well, it's, that bad, huh? Yeah, they chopped it up. It, that one, I, I'm still waiting for someone to do a really good ap- adaptation of the Dark Tower series. That needs to be a TV show. It needs to be a Game of Thrones level, high quality TV show. That's what it's got to be, and don't make it into movies. Yeah. So speaking of adaptations, I'm I'm curious, what was it like having one way adapted? I know they're still uh, putting the putting the finishing touches on the movie, but what was that like? Was that did you have a lot of creative control over that, or what was that process like? How, how did that develop? How did that kind of come to be? It was really rewarding. Um, the The director and I met each other over social media. It was one of those things. He was one of those early people that found um, the first podcast and uh, reached out to me and said, hey, really like your podcast. It's going great. Thought, I think it's really good. And then it, in his signature, I noticed he had links to some of his film work. So I Curious. I clicked on it and I really liked what I saw there. So we just started this correspondence back and forth. Um, he, he lives in uh, London. And so we just kind of started talking um, and struck up quite a friendship over the years. And uh, he, he asked if he could do shoot like a trailer, like a literary trailer uh, out of one of my books. So I said, sure, that sounds like an awesome idea. So he actually shot um, some literary trailers for this paper world. So cast cast it did like fight training with the with the the actors in it and shot beautiful trailers which which are out on YouTube and then he said let's do something bigger let's do let's do the champion saga as a series so we started adapting the champion saga this paper world as a movie and then we realized it's probably too ambitious so i said hey, i have an idea i get this other book one way might be a little bit smaller in scope it might be a little bit more practical for us to take on as an independent film. And so he said, yes, let's do it. So we pivoted. I wrote the screenplay adaptation for One Way, um, which as the author, it is funny. I'm as, as I just was critical about, why do they have to change things? It's perfect in the book. But now going through that process, then you do realize, ah, okay, this doesn't really fit the screen this way. So I've got to find some way around this. There's some really practical things like, mm-hmm. In the book, um, Jenny and Aaron have a nephew. Well, he informed me that to shoot with a child, there are all sorts of laws and things you have to do to have a child in it. So I said, all right, no nephew, out he goes. <laughs> so in the screenplay, there's no nephew. Uh, Jenny, uh, Barry's brother is announcing that he's going to have a baby. They don't have a baby, they don't have a child yet. So all right, no kids. Oh, that was one okay. practical thing I wrote out. And then just to kind of narrow down the cast, I wrote it, Barry has a father and a mother that have, you know, small little parts in one way. So I just wrote out the father and it's just the mom, um, just to kind of keep the cast a little bit smaller. And then for time, you know, you're kind of looking basically, the rule of thumb is it's about a page a minute. So as I kind of was doing the adaptation, I realized we're gonna run a little long. So I cut out a couple scenes here and there, just to kind of, you know, bridge it along. And then Jedediah was the tough one because he has a lot of internal dialogue and thoughts about his thoughts on time. And if you, you take someone out of the time stream and all the rippling effects that it has, and then his feelings about Jenny that 
-hmm. She's not right that she shouldn't be there. Um, but all of that is expressed internally in, in Jedediah in the book. Uh, he's got Rodney to bounce a couple things off early on, but he doesn't really share that interior stuff with Rodney. Rodney's just kind of a dumb you know, tool that he's using. So I had to figure out how do I get all of this internal stuff out of Jedediah, especially when there's when Rod, when there are no more Rodney and Rodney's not in the scenes with him. Yeah. So that was a challenge in in writing some of that out too, and then just some of the interplay between what would have been an internal for Barry or Jenny or Vanderven. I have to find ways to incorporate that into dialogue without making it seem like, ooh, here is some exposition that I need to explain that you already know. And I know you already know, but we're going to talk about it anyway. So that was, there's definitely a craft to it that I, that I learned throughout that process. So that was fun. And then casting was really cool because uh, the director did some uh, casting workshops. So we brought in groups of people and put them in scenes together. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, um, groups of people to play. You know, there was people that were assigned, uh, like a Barry and, a, and Jenny were assigned to work together, but there were like three groups of Barry and Jenny's. And so they would oh. do scenes together and then he would kind of mix them up a little bit. And he was like, I was watching over Skype and, and meeting the cast that way. So I wasn't involved in casting. I didn't like have a final say in casting, but I'd kind of watch some of the, this workshopping going on. And then the director and I would talk about what do we think about this person, that person. Mm -hmm. And um, just, it was fun. And then when they got to shooting, um, I would kind of get updates from from their shooting set and the schedule, and then I'd get little snapshots and I'd get little video. But all of this is going on over in the UK, so I, you know I can't really see it all. But that was fun, especially when I got to see rough edits of scenes. I was like, "Holy cow! These are people that I had in my brain a few years ago, and there they are in real life, and they're saying words are coming out of their mouth that I put on the page. That's cool. That's like yeah. that was." The most rewarding part of it. Oh, it was good. Other... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna. And, and and that that's. I I feel bad that the right now the production is kind of on hold. The, the mm -hmm. post production pieces of it were were kind of bigger, I think, than we thought, and more challenging. Um, but the cast was just fantastic, and they're the people that are most proud of in this in this whole endeavor just how much they put of themselves out there to be these characters and um so they did a really good job too and the, and the crew too the people you know working the sound and cameras and all of that i'm really anxious anxious to see it i hope it it uh hope we're able to see it sometime i i am too yeah yeah i i'm i chat with the director periodically still and i think we're going to try to um if nothing else put together some scenes that we can put out for people and maybe do some um literary, some trailers, just to kind of like uh, bring interest to the book and, and the podcast. But um, it would be cool to see it on screen someday, for sure. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, I know you use Twitter to communicate a little bit with your readers, but um, I know you, you also mentioned about that being uh, something that you try and have quality communicate, you know, quality conversations and, and relationships with those people. Does that help keep you going? And does that help kind of keep you motivated like we were talking about? 100%, 100%. I, 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 it's probably the main reason why 
there was a book two in the champion saga and why there's a book three and why I keep writing. It's um, people that tell me that I'm doing a good job and people that want to see that next piece of it. The, the one piece of feedback I get most about this burning world, which is the second in the champion saga is when's the third one coming out? You left us on a cliffhanger. You gotta, you know, so if it weren't for people that I interact with, I don't know how much of my own momentum would have stayed with this, with all of this. It's certainly not um, the millions of dollars that are pouring in. It's, it's not the red carpet events I'm invited to because neither of those things are happening, but it absolutely is the people. It's the readers and people that um, I get joy out of crafting a story and then having them enjoy that story. So are, as far as other forms of entertainment and, and inspiration for your books, is, is are there do you get a lot, of, a lot of inspiration from certain types of movies or TVs or music? Does that kind of help you get ideas flowing and, and those ideas germinate? I think so, yeah. I think really every every TV show and movie that I watch nowadays probably, if, if not concepts from those things, just tonally and like, oh, that was a great fist bump kind of moment in that movie. I want to write something like that someday. Um, so those, those definitely help uh, inspire at least fuel it a little bit and music is is definitely a big part of it like I'll um, usually I'll kind of have a a soundtrack that I write to so a lot of times I'll put on you know kind of John Williams James Horner type movie scores to yeah. write and it just puts me in a kind of a cinematic mind frame when I'm writing to the you know the Star Wars theme I'm just, you know, moving along or like in the champion books, for some reason, uh, Foo Fighters became kind of like the the uh, the anthem type music for uh, this paper world and this burning world. So every time I write uh, in this champion world, I will I'll put on the Foo Fighters and mm. Dave Grohl and I and, and the guys are rocking out <laughs> while I'm writing these fight scenes and, and yeah. all that stuff. So it's fun. Oh wow, that's that's really interesting that you uh, went from movie scores to the Foo Fighters and that, but I guess it just kind of clicked and that's, that's what worked for you. So that's good. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how much if it influences tonally, if it influences the writing or not, but it just kind of puts me in kind of a headspace to, you know, if I'm picturing a fight scene and the, and the Foo's are rocking out, then it almost like choreographs it in my head as I'm, and sometimes I'll like, I'll just let an album play or sometimes I'll back up and I'll keep playing the same track over and over and over again. And yeah. that's kind of like the, the, the soundtrack to that scene as I was writing it. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, when you, when you, when you start to develop your, or I guess in general is what, what makes, what makes a good story? What are the, in your mind, what what makes a good story? Like when you, whether you're reading something, or you're writing something, or you're watching or listening to something, what what do you look out for? What makes a, a good story? I think to me, and I I don't know if I I don't know when I came to this realization, whether it was already when I started writing or just was there subconsciously, but I think it's um, no matter how fantastic the plot is, no matter what craziness is going on, whether it's magic or aliens or lasers or whatever, um, it's got to be happening to real people. And I mm. think that to me is where I find a connection, you know, going back to my favorite movie of all time, Back to the Future, there's a kid that 
that I could relate to. At the time I watched it, I was 10, but you know, so Marty was older than me. He was a big kid, he was a teenager, but this, this kid would, he woke up and he had a messy room and he was late for school and would skateboard. And, and this fantastic adventure that he was on mm-hmm. was first and foremost happening to a real person. And I think those are the things that speak to me. It's, you know, when you, you'll, in, I see it in movies that are when it's a fantastic thing that's happening, but it's just happening to people. Like mm-hmm. uh, if it's the fantastic thing or the effects or the, the plot con- contrivances first, and the people aren't really fully fleshed out underneath, I, I kind of disconnect from it. But if it's people first, and then even if it's a subtly fantastic thing, it doesn't have to be like the most amazing fantastic thing, but it has to be fantastic to them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm on board and off we go. Uh, did you, or when you start to develop a story, you start to kind of get that tissue going. Do you, do you do a lot of research on like, for instance, on one way, did you do research on like serial killers or, um, did you do any kind of research on that or did you just kind of go with it? That one, I kind of was, was winging it. I, um, I, I, and I thought about it after the fact, but I put a lot of scenes in with Dr. Vanderven, who's a grief counselor. And I thought after the fact, like, Ooh, there might be some people who really know something about therapy and, you know, about psychology that might read this and be like, that's crap. This, this is a hundred percent wrong. Why would he put that in there? I was like, eh, it's a book. It's fiction. I'm just going to go with it. So I didn't do any research on that one. With um, this paper world, there's a road trip in it that kind of the, these these characters drive up from Florida to New York City. So I, and this was kind of early days of internet, like pre-Google Maps. So I actually went out and bought atlases so I could kind of like, okay, they could probably make it that far in a day. All right, so I'll put them around this city at this time. Oh, wow, that's good. And idea. then, and I would, you know, look at AAA stuff and you know pick out a town and even this you know so there's a town out you know west of dallas that i there's one scene that happens in so just kind of google around not google maps pre-google maps but to get like kind of static pictures of what that town looks like and i'm like okay but i can write to that um and so that i did that and then when i did um the three scrooges which is kind of a twist on a christmas carol Mm -hmm. i wanted to write it in kind of Charles Dickens language, so you could read the Three Scrooges almost as a direct sequel or prequel, depending on where you want to put them. Time travel, you can do it either way, but um, that it would kind of flow with the original Christmas Carol. So I read that book several times, listened to it in a couple different audio formats, so I could really keep the the voice and the to some extent, although I probably cheated a little bit, vocabulary of the times and mm-hmm. <laughs> make sure I was staying somewhat true to kind of Victorian era uh, England. And I wrote another um, novella called Crush Depth, Crush Depth, which um, happens in a submarine. And mm-hmm. so I had to do a lot of research about kind of the you know, mid-Atlantic ridge and at what depth do certain creatures go and at what depth would something break and how deep do we dive and kind of mm-hmm. understanding that. But that was all like Google searches. It wasn't, it wasn't like <laughs> hours in a library interviewing professionals. It was just like, yeah, Google.com. Google. Yeah. But that's, that's research now. It's not, you know, you know, I remember back going to the library and pulling up microfish and that kind right. of thing, you index cards and all that's all that's over. So it's, it's good that we can just type it in the search bar and, and find the answers. It's the information age. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, what are some of the things that, or what are some of the surprising things that you've learned writing books? Surprising things. Um, I'm always surprised at um, humanity's capacity to want more stories. And you think we've been around as a as a culture, as a society, for thousands of years, and you'd think every story would have been told by now. Every movie that's ever worth watching would have been made by now. We can stop, right? We've got this library of like, I'll just go back and I'll just keep watching the original Star Wars over and over again. We don't we don't need more. But people do want more. People have this, this hunger for like, what's the next story? And sometimes we like stories that are familiar structures and remind us of something else and and okay, I got what I came for. I knew what I was looking for. I got a robot movie. I want to, you know, watch Transformers. I got a robot movie. It's, you know, robots kicking each other and shooting laser. Got it. I got my $7 worth or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And then other times you find people that kind of break the mold and kind of go, ha, ah, you thought you were in for this, but now I've twisted it and given you something new, something you didn't know you want. And I, that's just, that's been a great revelation to me over the years that, is, you know, I think when I wrote one way, I'm writing a time travel story. There's a million and one of these things out, out there and they can only win, end one of a couple different ways. So uh, what am I gonna do with this? And people are just gonna be like, yep, another time travel story, but people love it and people always want more. So mm -hmm. I'm happy because I've got more in my head. So I'm yeah. happy to give them more. Exactly. Um, are there are there therapeutic benefits to modeling a character after someone you know? <laughs> um, that's a good question because I, I try to pretend like I don't model characters after people I know because I don't want anybody reading it going, hey, that's me. <laughs> that's me. You think that about me? He killed me off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't act like that. Um, but the funny thing is, is people that, that do know me think I've modeled characters after them when I really haven't. Like my, oh, really? my sister came to me after she read one way and my sister is a, was a teacher, was a school teacher. And Jenny is a school teacher in the book. So she assumed I was writing about her and her husband. I was like, huh, okay, if you want to think that, yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you do have to, I do grab bits and pieces and parts of people and, and um, use them, in, but usually not in, in whole cloth. Like it's, it's a characteristic of someone or um, just a, a little quirk of their personality, but then I'll purposely either flip it, like I'll invert it. So if mm -hmm. they were reading along, they go, wait, that's me. Oh no, that isn't me. That's the opposite of me. Exactly. Um, or, you know, it'll just be mismatched with a, a few different people um, yeah. that I just kind of pulled in for inspiration. But I mean, in general, you just, you know, you, there are plenty of people around and plenty of different personality types that um, I don't, I don't ever feel like I need to go, well, I've got to write my grandmother into the story and just give her a different name. It's just, you can, you can, you can make characters. They're just, they're their own people, their own beings. Yeah. I guess they evolve on their own through the story. They absolutely do. That's the funny thing is you, you know, I, I start with a kernel of, of who this character is and it's usually like a touchstone that I'll go back to and kind of just to ground myself in who this character is. But 
that rudimentary start is usually just the beginning. And then they kind of, as you write them and as you let them have more dialogue with, with other people and as you let them kind of have internal thoughts, they really do grow. And it's, a, it's an odd thing. And I hate to sound like one of those hippy dippy writers that says it all just comes to me and it's yeah. but it it really this I don't know if it's metaphysical or mystical, but it is kind of a fun process to just let these characters kind of almost like little AIs in your head kind of pick up things and grow throughout your story. Well it's an interesting way to 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 view them like little their own little beings doing their own thing and you just kind of go along with it. Yeah. You steer them. You gotta, you know Sometimes you got to kill them, which is not fun, but, <laughs> but, but you do, it is, is, you can't completely think you know everything about your characters when you start out. You've you got to be open for them to kind of do their own thing because um, I'd be lying if I sat down to write a novel and say that I knew I had all 110,000 words were already up here. I just had to get them out on paper. It definitely generates as it goes along. I would imagine each of your books has a special place in your heart and they're, they're due to your creations. But was there one in particular that you enjoyed writing the most? And also, was there one that you had the hardest time writing? Or not the hardest time, but the that took the most effort, I guess you can say. It's, it's funny. I get asked that question a lot, especially on social media. Well, which one's your favorite? I'll start with that one. Um, and I usually have kind of a pat answer that about you know, it's like picking your own your favorite kid or whatever yeah. um but i do i was such a different person each time i wrote one of these that um each time when i'm writing them it was my favorite like because it's always the latest thing you're creating so you think you're always furthest along in your path at that time so um you know i will always have a special place in my heart for this paper world i wrote it you know 20 years ago at this point um I was a much younger person then, and my character was younger and more naive. And and now that I've just finished my third book with him, and with that in that world, I can say that the last book I wrote was the most fun because it's the latest thing I've done, and it it kind of ties up a trilogy. And um, but I could say that at any point about any one of these, like writing writing the Three Scrooges was fun because I was writing, you know, Dickensian type prose, which was like a game. It was just fun to like try to mix and match words that way and and try to make it sound poetic and old timey, but at the same time still not like lose people because it's too archaic. So I, it's it's probably a good, very long non-answer to your question, but each book is, no. is your favorite at the time you're writing it. Yeah. When you do, when you do create characters and have them evolving, do you find yourself relating to any of them? Or is that something that you try to avoid or you try and do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do, I try to deny it probably is a better way. Like a lot of people will point out, like when you read Stephen King books, just how many of them are writers? Like, oh gee, who could he be thinking of when he's writing this middle-aged man uh, that has a, a, a drug and alcohol problem and is also a writer at the time? Yeah, could could he be drawing on anybody he knows? Uh, so I try to I try to go the opposite of that in some cases, but it's it's always there. Like you know, Jim Hunt from um, Paper World, 
was a young guy from the Northeast, from New England, that was going to college in Florida. Guilty. Uh, Barry was a young married man with no kids who worked second shift at a call center. Guilty. Like it's, it, it creeps in. Like you got to write what you know and um, yeah. you start with that as a base and then you kind of go off from there. I, you know, we, I talked earlier about writing about a plumber in space. I'm not a plumber. So unless I did a lot of research, I couldn't necessarily write about being a plumber. So probably none of my characters have been plumbers yet, but <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Maybe they, they could though. <laughs> you never know. Uh, if, if you could sit down and have a, a conversation or have dinner with another popular author, who would it be? And just to ask them questions or, ju or just to talk about anything you wanted to talk about. That's a really good question. Um, I, boy, there's so many that come to mind because, and, and for very different reasons. Like I, I would think like having, a, having dinner with Ernie Klein would be fun because he and I could geek out about 80s pop culture and 80s movies and just, you know, fun stuff like that, but very different than in Ernie, who's a great writer, but I think he's only put out, you know, three or four books at this point in his career, whereas Stephen King, who's put out 50, 60, uh, who knows, but like two, you could have two very different conversations and two very enjoyable ones. So have me nail down one, Dean Koontz, just yeah. seems like a really nice guy. Like anybody who likes dogs as much as he does has to be like super nice. <laughs> Maybe it's all an act, but he just seems like one of those like swell guys you'd you'd walk away from like with a smile on your face. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, it's a tough one. If you put a gun to my head, um, Stephen King. I'm a. I grew up in Maine. I'm a Maine boy. He's a Maine boy. Let's go, with Stephen King. So what would you ask him? What would be something that you would want to get answered from someone like King in that conversation? I don't know. That's a really good question. Cause I mean, I could ask him about the, the writing process or some of his, uh, you know, character, you know, how's he come up with characters or whatever. But I think, I feel like he's answered a lot of that in, you know, in his own books and, and interviews and things like that. I don't know. I probably just want to just, chat with him about regular stuff and then see where the conversation goes. That's, that's a good question. Hmm. This is a really good question, Steve. You've stumped oh, I, me. <laughs> I saw, at least I got you on one of them. Uh, what would, what would your readers be? The ones that you, that you're, that are familiar with you and that you communicate with, what would, what would they, what would they be surprised to learn about you? Oh, Probably how much of an insecure dork I am uh, that that uh, I, I put on a big act when I put out my books and stuff, but deep down, I feel like I'm faking it all the time. And one of these days I'm going to be found out. They're going to people are going to realize what a fraud and what a sham I am. And, and I will be a social pariah, but until then I'll just keep faking it. Yeah. I think, I don't think that's really, um, I don't think that's too rare. I think most people feel that way deep down if they were being honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. We all, we all feel like we're putting on a, a, a brave face when we face society, but then inside we probably think, say that right. Put my foot in my mouth. Or, yeah. yeah. 
we all fake it to a certain extent. Yeah, we're all we're all doing that. I think to some to some extent, all of us are. So before uh, I wanted to to set aside a little bit of time before I let you go to to go over some spoilers from one way. Okay. Yes. Yeah. To, to turn off now if you don't want to be spoiled. Is that the yeah. Warning? So I wanted to be sure and, and set aside some spoilery talk from one way. Okay. So the first question I have is actually from Luke from Luke's room. Uh, he, I think you you saw his video that he did. Yes. On uh, on one way. So his uh, his question was, um, he would like to know how hard it was to write the scene where Jen from the future had to leave Barry. It was so it was so well written, and it made me and it made him hunt, wonder how hard it would be to be leaving his partner like that. The emotion was real, and it also and he would also love to know how you how you found the inspiration to write those types of scenes. That's a good question. Yeah. Um... I guess I just really fell in love with them being in love with each other. And I, I tried to put myself in their position on um, what is it like to be, to love someone and have someone that you, though it's a real world kind of love, their husband and wife, husband and wives, and it's not all hearts and flowers and romance all the time. But when you're in a, scenario where there's you know lives on the line where there's moral jeopardy what would it feel like to have to try you know this person that you love more than anything else more than you love yourself is in danger and you want to put yourself in between them and that danger mm -hmm. um and that's kind of where a lot of that emotion came from and um and Part of it was like I have to resolve this story and I've got to figure out how this ends. But at its core, it was if a real husband and wife were out there and there's this madman trying to kill them, each one of them wants to keep the other one alive, even if it's at their own expense. So what, how would those emotions play out? The with, with Jen especially, the emotions that she goes through after losing Barry, the the way that you described it was, I thought, really accurate. It, I thought you did a really great job with describing it. That sort of depression where you where you feel really heavy and you 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 don't it it, it really got to me because it was so well described with with her experience with that. Not that I've ever been in that position, but um, also the the phone call that she made to her dad towards the end of the book. Gosh, that was a that was a tough phone call, and it made you wonder what would I say. If I had to make that phone call, I mean, what was that? What was writing that like? What, what, what kind of, what did you, how did you kind of develop that? That, well, that scene was kind of a gift to me because it was one of those when I was doing my little blue index card and trying to match things up, I realized I was going to come a few chapters shy of making a couple of points meet. Mm -hmm. So I said, I've got to, I've got to have something in between. And so that's when I thought of, well, she's leaving. Like she's got to say goodbye to a life and a life isn't just one person. And yes, she'd kind of disconnected from her, from her teaching colleagues and stuff like that, but she's got a dad and we'd established that dad early on in the book um, when she and Barry were having a phone call about, you know, going and visiting her dad. And, uh, and I thought one, one doesn't undertake this sort of thing without thinking about saying goodbye to people. So that's, mm -hmm. 
that's where that scene came about. And I just kind of put them same with you. Like how do now that they're real people, now that Jenny has become this AI that lives in my head. Now just let her talk to her dad and just yeah. let that scene play out. And that's kind of how that, that happened. It's funny because when my wife first started reading the book, she was a few, like, you know, like a hundred pages in and she's like, I really don't like his wife. I really don't like Jenny. And at the end of the book, she loved Jenny. And it, I thought it was, I thought that was well done. Like you said, they're, they're a normal couple. It wasn't perfect. They had their issues, you know, uh, they had, um, uh, you know, he, he was kind of, um, she was angry about his family and, and it was kind of things that you would in a, in a real marriage that you would go through. So I thought that was good that it wasn't all perfect and it wasn't, uh, everything wasn't working perfect all the time. It was just a normal relationship. And that's, that was and made it relatable to, to have them have those little kind of disagreements or, you know, those kind of arguments. I thought that was, that was well done. Thank you. I, and that's, um, that was, core to me too, as I was writing this, because I, you know, I, when I started writing it, I was pretty much a newlywed myself, you know, young married <laughs> couple with no kids in my own life. Um, and I just remember like seeing, you know, TV shows and movies and reading books where the husband and wife were always like too cutesy with each other, too perfect. Yeah. And, and then part of me is always like reflecting like, my life's not like that. What am I doing wrong? Like what, did, you know, and then I realized, no, that's not me being wrong. That's, Hollywood and and writers giving us a varnished version of what real life is. So I tried to keep it as real as possible and think about what are those little things that you know discussions and arguments that you have in real life, and then and put that in there. But also knowing that um, I want there were two things I wanted to accomplish. That you know one was kind of just from a story perspective that I didn't I wanted them to not have said you know I love you in their last moments talking to each other so that that was sort of like a catalyst for Jenny something she was going to carry with her and was kind of at the core of her grief that she hung up on Barry in their last conversation. Yeah. She never said, I love you. Um, and then the other one is just, you know, that you, that though you're not always going to be hearts and flowers and roses, you will die for each other when it comes down to it. And that's, that's real love. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I, even until the very, the very last few pages, I wasn't sure what kind of ending we were, ending we were going to have. I thought it, it may not be a happy ending. I, I went back and forth with, I don't know if this is going to end. Well. I don't know how this is going to end. So I thought that was, that was really well done too, is it kept me guessing how is, is this going to be a happy ending or is, is this not going to be a happy ending? Did you, you consider need both? Yeah. Oh, really? Did you? So you considered making it? A <laughs> well, I, I just I knew that future Jenny couldn't couldn't coexist in the same. If if she ends up saving Barry, there's another Jenny at home sleeping in that bed who's going to wake up and not be a widow. So I wasn't going to back to the future it and have older Jenny like disappear, like you know Marty at the at uh, the dance yeah. or whatever. So I was like, how am I going to resolve this? And then I, and many people don't catch this. So I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler or too much of, but I actually laid Jenny's end in the beginning of the book. There's a scene when they're talking about going camping and going hiking. And they talk about how that, they talk about that scene at the waterfall and how cold right. that water was. 
and they talk about a hiker or somebody's body being found near that waterfall. Oh, I so didn't catch that. Uh huh. So not a lot I of people do, that. but that was that was. So I knew I was like, yes, I can. There, there we go. I can wow. bring it around to that. I didn't catch that at all. That is, that gives me the chills to know that that was in there. I'm about to go back and read it. Wow, that's really cool. Is it is it hard when you when you when you put something like that in in your work and and you want more people to find? It? Is it hard to not kind of throw it out there a little bit and let people know? Hey, you might want to pay attention to this. Sometimes, sometimes that one that one I let I will I will let people in on. Not many people have come to me with that one and go, "Wait, oh, that's her." But I also I kind of write um, that, and there's a there's kind of a big reveal in um, in the third book of the Champion Saga that. I started laying the breadcrumbs in from chapter one of this paper world. Oh, wow. So that I almost write it from a, um, like, like the sixth sense. Remember that movie with Bruce Willis where he was, mm-hmm. he sees dead spoiler, people. Spoiler alert. Yeah. 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 But when you, if you watch that movie a second time, you're like, Oh, the clues were there all along. And that's kind of what I was, when I write those types of things in that, um, if anybody ever picks up one way and reads it for a second time, maybe that will stand out and they'll go, oh, oh. And the oh, same man. thing with this paper world, that once you know what the big reveal is in book three, that if you were to read the series again, you'd go, it was there the whole time. Like he was flaunting it in our face. Although that one, a few people have guessed. So the third book hasn't come out yet, mm. but um and I end the ending of book two on a cliffhanger and, and there's a mystery reveal of someone at the end of book two and some people have correctly guessed who that mystery person is when they oh, okay. send me letters and stuff. So apparently they're very that, observant. What is that feeling like when they when they can when they kind of predict those things to happen? Is that is that is that a good feeling to know that they pay attention and they, they kind of guessed right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I surprised? love that because it's it means that it wasn't too obscure and it won't be a cheat when it oh, does okay. come out. Um, that that the clues were strong enough and that it wasn't just like and in the third act here's this reveal that you never saw coming and didn't really deserve because you hadn't <laughs> laid any plans for it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a good it's a good one. When you were when you were connecting that tissue with one way. Did you set? Did you? I know you're a big fan of time travel movies and time travel stories. Did you set a set of rules for time travel as you were going, or did kind of just to keep you honest with? Because it's easy to cheat with time travel stories, and it's easy to kind of bend the rules and to make it convenient for the story. And you didn't do that with one way. So I was wondering, did you have rules that you had to follow uh, when you were writing the story? A little bit of it, of course. Growing up in the in the eighties, nineties, me and my geek friends were always talking about time travel rules, and there were actually two DeLoreans there at that time. And you know, kind of picking apart, you know, all the all the different time travel rules. Is this Bill and Ted rules, where you can say "Remember the trash can," or you know, but it. So I did have that kind of in my mind that there had to be kind of a baseline of rules, but I also wanted to keep it vague enough so that the story was not all about. The mechanics of the time travel that if you didn't ever establish fully the rules you were okay with it because you were more about the characters and what was happening and and how this was was going to go down um i actually although i will say i broke i did break the rules mm. with that last scene with jenny because 
if you remember, she had to, she could chronolocate, but she couldn't physically relocate. Like she had to go to the place and then chronolocate. Right. She couldn't be like halfway across the globe. Um, so that was a bit of a cheat because Jenny ended up going from the cabin to where they were hiking. So that was, yeah. I, but I was like, I'm going to allow it because I want the emotional beat of this to, to be in here. And if someone calls me on breaking the rules, I'll take that criticism yeah. heartily. <laughs> how, how did you come up with the idea of chronolocating? Was that something that you researched? Because it seems like you put in some research into that because I think you described it really well and you kind of, you set the table for, for how it works in that world. Did, is that something that you kind of thought out and you, you took some time to think of, or did it just kind of come, come out? It just came it. Yeah. I just kind of thought it out and, and let it, you know, after watching, you know, decades of time travel, you know, and quantum leap and back to the future and doctor who. And um, I, I said, well, I'm just going to make up my own rules. And, I, and actually I started and I didn't know. I, and remember it all started with that kernel of guys at a gas station at night pumping gas and the time traveler comes to him. So I always knew that I was going to reveal how she got there at some point, mm -hmm. but I had no idea when I started writing this book. I was like, all right, well, it's going to have something to do with Vandervan. And well, he can't be doing it alone. So maybe he's got this gaggle of scientists and, yeah. and are they built? Is it a time machine? No, it's not a time machine. That feels weird. Is it a portal? You know, so I just kind of, and I went with him being a therapist in using that psychological element, that kind of like consciousness is the is the thing that's driving all this, not a blue sparky laser ray or something. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of time travel and entertainment with time travel in it, a little bit off, uh, a little bit of a tangent, but have you seen Dark on Netflix? No, I haven't. Oh, if you, from just from this conversation, you will love Dark. It is a, a German, it's a German uh, series. It's three seasons long, and so there's subtitles in it. But if you love time travel and you love uh, love the 80s, you'll love Dark. It is so well done. It is really, really good. So That is going in my queue right now. Yeah. As I if, just, uh, when you have time, yeah. For the first time uh, recently, I watched... Um, there was a, there's one on Amazon prime. It's a mockumentary called the history of time travel, mm -hmm. which I thought was, was an interesting take on it as well. And it was fun to watch. And that was one. If, have you ever seen that one? Mm -mm. It's basically uh, conducted through a, it's basically like, looks like a documentary. So it's a series of interviews and then some recreations of like, you know, actors acting out what they're describing in the interview. But if you watch it, like you Pay attention to everything that's in the frame at all times because it's it's really an interesting narrative that goes along throughout the documentary as well. Hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see what or to hear what you think of Dark and if uh, kind of how you if if you kind of I, I don't want to spoil it, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it after you watch will, the, the first few episodes. I will definitely reach out and uh, we can have a good chat about it. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome. Um, and we kind of already—I had a, a question for you about uh, keeping the the timeline straight. You've already answered that one for me, which that was something that I, I wondered as I was reading it: is how do you keep all these lines straight? That was 
And I, I did have a question about uh, Jedediah because I, I, I want to I want to think that there were because he he knew Jenny something wasn't right that there was something wrong with with and he he was so determined to set to set things in in his mind to set things right. Were there other powers at play there? Were there other forces at play, or was he just in tune somehow with what was going on? Um, I want to be careful how I answer this because um, there may be more books, more stories coming. Okay, um, yeah, that's. Uh, but yeah, he is. He's definitely on the right track. He like, like Vanderven does have a sense of time and and in an innate sense of this nature. Mm -hmm. So he was it was not just the fact that he's a psycho killer psychosis, but that you know, he's got a feel of this, Vanderven's got a feel of it, which is why he can find these candidates and um and that all plays together. And there might be there might be something bigger at play. Okay. Uh, if I ever if I ever do decide to to pick up the journey? Yeah, that was that was my next question. Actually, is is are there will there be more stories in this universe in this world of, of one way? In my head, I have two more books planned. I think I think oh, wow. it could be a trilogy. Um, I already have the names. Uh, Wrong way and dead end would be the the next two books, uh, and it would really springboard off the the little epilogue scene at the end. Um, with Vanderven and his new patient, um, his wife was killed by a drunk driver, or his family was killed by a drunk driver. So it will, yeah. that will start the next sequence of events off. If I can, if I ever get around to writing it. You know, it's funny when, because my wife flew through the book and she was finished in, I don't know, what, two or three days. And it takes me a little bit longer because of work and everything else. But she was dying for me to finish it because when, when I finished it, we had this big long conversation about how things may be connected with the epilogue. Cause when I've read the epilogue, I thought there's some kind of connection here with Jedediah or somehow it's connected. Uh, and I, we sat down and we were trying to figure out how it would be connected, but we, we couldn't find a way, but I was, I was convinced that there was something connecting everything. So I know if I'm, I might be way off, but uh, Nope. Nope. Okay. There's right. there, there could be more. There could be more. I, I kind of wanted to write it that um, because in in the when you're writing and when you're trying to get publishing up and running, um, there's there's only so many decades of your life you can invest in a series if if nobody's picking up the thread, if publishers um, aren't aren't gonna pick you up on it. You don't want to be writing the seventh book of your series that no one is gonna <laughs> publish. Um, so I wanted to do a standalone. So in my head, the whole point of One Way was it would have a beginning, middle, and end, and it could could live on its own. But by the time I got to the end, I was like, "Ooh, this has legs. Yeah, there, there could be more to this." So I'm trying to like resist the urge, um, but there sometimes stories just keep knocking at the back door of your brain and going, "Hello, remember me? I, I want to be told. Can you can you write me?" So Those maybe, guys, yeah. maybe they, they come knocking. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I want to thank you again for, um, 
for spending time to to chat and again for helping support our our new book club that we we're trying to get going so that was very generous and i do appreciate uh the offer and, and it was a it was an awesome book i loved it it was um you know i wasn't really i i try not to read the synopsis of any book so i when uh when jenny showed up i was like what is going what's going they gave you know it kind of i'm glad i didn't read the synopsis too too you know, I didn't really pay too much attention because I, I like to go into things blind. But when Jenny showed up, it was just, what is going on? Like, you know, because it was, it was a good moment. Awesome. So, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad it worked. Glad it worked. So I will, uh, I'll let you go. But I, um, how can people find you? Um, is there a way that people can, can find you online? And what, uh, and you mentioned the third book and the, uh, the trilogy coming out. When can we be expecting to see that? Or what can we do to support it and to get the word out? Oh, great question. So you can, um, I'm on Twitter primarily. I'm um, at World of Jeff Lane is the, what I call the promotional account where I mainly, you know, use it to kind of promote the books. But I'm also, I have writer, at writer Jeff Lane, which is kind of my dorky, just be funny or try to be funny. I don't know if I really am, but um <laughs> So that's, uh, so you can find me on Twitter there. Um, I am on Facebook, but I can never remember the name of it. I think it's Jeff Lane Fiction and Media, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I don't, I'm not as active on Facebook as much as I probably should be. Um, but if you're more of a Facebook person, reach out. I'll certainly interact there. Um, in terms of the third book in the Champion Saga, I'm, I've got it out to beta readers right now who are, uh, going through helping find my myriad of typos and grammatical issues and and just tell me um, how the story's hitting them. So as soon as I get it kind of polished up, I'm going to start that cycle again where I reach out um, to literary agents. And now instead of put, pitching a single book, I'm going to be pitching a, a trilogy of books, a series of books, and see if that gets me anywhere different. But if not, then I will do what I have always done is uh, just it out myself and mm -hmm. i think i owe that to the fans of of this book i you know i wrote it in 2000 2001 and i put it out in podcast in like 2009 and so i've got people who have been waiting for this third book for a long time and i kind of owe it to them so no matter how i get it out there it is going to be out there and it will it will kind of uh, bring that series to a, a nice landing for now there could be more um and then uh, who knows what the next adventure will be. I do. Awesome. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's good to keep us guessing. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if anybody who has read One Way and they want to uh, they want to support the, the other books, um, jump right into the Champion Saga, this paper world, this burning world, and then hopefully soon this Champion's world. Awesome. Well, if, if I can do anything on my end to help with the, the new book, let, you know, let me know. I'm, I'll do whatever I can do to help and get the word out and to, uh, and to let people know about it, if that'll help at all with the publishers and things. Thank you. Appreciate that. But uh, like I said, thanks again for taking a few minutes of your time. It's been almost two hours. I was surprised. You know, I didn't, it's flown by. Uh, so I appreciate you taking time out of your, out of your evening to, to sit and chat and just have a conversation. Anytime, Steve. Anytime. Yeah. And let me know after you watch Dark. Uh, I'd be, I, I wouldn't mind having a, you know, sitting down and talking about it and seeing your, hearing your thoughts. And uh, whether it's after the first season or after the first few episodes, I'd be, be really curious to see your thoughts on it. 
we'll have a good old geek out about it. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's right up my alley. So I'm I'm ready for that anytime. Perfect. Awesome. awesome. It's a date. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Jeff. I, I really appreciate your time and, and taking a few minutes to chat. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.